Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. If you are a visitor or guest with us today, we're delighted that you've chosen to worship with us. And uh, if you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're delighted that you've chosen to worship with us as well. We're in a series called A.D., A New Beginning. It's a sequel, sort of, to the study that we did on the life of Christ. This is the first 10 chapters of Acts, and we're looking at the birth of the church. And today, we have arrived at Acts chapter 5. So, if you want to turn there, well, you can. I really appreciated uh, Neil's communion meditation a few minutes ago. It was a a very poignant reminder of how important it is to remember, but I got to tell you, those statistics are demoralizing for a preacher. If you spend your entire life, you know, preaching and and writing sermons, and then to realize that a month later, 90% of what we learn, we forget. Oh, my goodness. I I, I was sitting there thinking while Tim was singing, I wasn't paying any attention, and I… And I realized if that's the case, then I could preach the same sermon a month from now, change the title, and you all wouldn't know it. So, 30 days from now, let's see how we do with Acts chapter 5 again, all right? Recent archaeological discoveries using new technology that has aided uh, science in being able to discover things now reveals that the Great Wall of China it was probably twice as long as what they originally thought. It stretched some 13,000 miles across the borders of China, was built over a period of 2,200 years, the most solid construction of which took place during the Ming Dynasty. But it's interesting, that which we see, that part of the wall that was probably the bulk of it done during the Ming Dynasty, we only have like 8.2% of of what was built during that time still left to view. It was an amazing accomplishment. And while the integrity of the wall at the time of its construction seemed impregnable, the integrity of the gatekeepers was not. On more than one occasion, a gatekeeper was bribed to open the gate and turned a blind eye to the invading forces that stormed through the gates of the Great Wall of China. You see, sometimes the enemy on the outside is not as strong as the enemy on the inside. Last week, when we looked at Peter and John being put in prison in the beginning of the persecution of the early church, we saw the explosive nature of the anger on the outside of the church. But when we come to Acts chapter 5, we are confronted with the implosive nature of sometimes the dangers on the inside, because sometimes what happens on the inside is worse than what happens on the outside, and God takes some harsh actions to preserve His fledgling church, to make sure that it was on solid ground because this church, His church, is going to have to last to the very end of time. It is God's only means of the spread of the gospel. So, we come to Acts chapter 5. Now, what we've seen up to this point in time in the life of the church is their willingness to share with those in need. People sold lands and they gave freely out of their income to help with other struggling Christians in the church in that day and time. Now, we do the same thing today. This is not coerced. You are not mandated. You are not taxed here. We give because we want to give. We give because we love the Lord. We give freely because we feel it is our Christian responsibility to do so. And when there are times of crisis that are arise, it it calls from us other actions. 
Just like Tim mentioned a few minutes ago uh, that uh, with the, the earthquakes and the devastation in Nepal, we've already had folks in this congregation who've asked, what are we going to do for the people in Nepal to help out? And over the last several months, many of you have sacrificed greatly uh, to, to help with the unleashed goal. You, you see, that's what Christians do, not because we have to, but because we want to out of our love for Jesus Christ. It's always volunteer. It's never coerced. But then we come to the fifth chapter of Acts, and something changes. Acts 5.1 opens like this. <clears throat> now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now, this is obviously a volunteer action that's going on here. Like Barnabas and so many of the others, they do the same thing, and so far, so good. We like what they've done. <clears throat> but verse 2 goes like this. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Oh, my goodness. There is a big change between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 reveals a good deed. Verse 2 reveals a terrible motive. All of the good achieved in the sale is completely undermined by the deceitful attitude in the sharing of the gifts with the church. They wanted full credit for their sacrifice without the full sacrifice. Suddenly it wasn't about doing good, it was about creating the appearance of good. It wasn't about meeting an important need. It was about needing to appear important. Evidently, Ananias and Sapphira assumed nobody would ever find out. I mean, after all, how are Peter and John going to know they didn't give every penny that they got from the sale of their land? But God always knows. God always knows and somehow revealed it to Peter. Look, look what happens next, verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. Now, you talk about a memorable worship service. That would have been one. I'm always trying to find a good way to illustrate God's truth so we can remember it better. But no one would have forgotten this lesson on honesty. Let me tell you what. There would have been no 90-day shelf limit on this memory part. They would have never forgotten the day, the day that Ananias dropped dead in the worship service for lying to God. It's a good thing that doesn't happen today or the church would be a morgue, is, wouldn't it? <laughs> Verse 6 then goes on, then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. There was no memorial service. There was no weeping. There was no sorrow, just a burial. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and P Peter gives her a chance. Notice this. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Sapphira could have dropped her head and said, no, no, Peter, it's not. It was, all, it was all a ruse. It's not. But instead, she says, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, 
the, men, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. No mourning, no weeping, just a burial, no service, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I don't know what Sapphira looked like, but I do know that she was absolutely drop-dead greedy. <laughs> Even with a second chance, a second chance to make it right, she stuck with the lie instead of the truth. Now, I, I can't ever read this story in the fifth chapter of Acts without remembering that song that I learned in camp back when we were teenagers. You know, you know how sometimes a song will get into your mind and it's on your mind when you go to bed and you wake up the next morning, it's back in your mind right away. Working on this sermon all week, that song has been that way with me. It's just about driven me nuts all week long. It's on my mind constantly. If you know it, uh, just sing it with me, all right? Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power but did not fear it, tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied it and they both dropped dead. God loves a cheerful giver. Give it all you've got. He loves to see you laughing when you're in an awful spot and when the odds are up against you and you cannot do a thing. Praise God. To praise Him is a wondrous thing. Now that's a song that will stick with you for the rest of your life. That's kind of you, but you're still confused. <laughs> It, it's, hard to, it's hard to let that song out, but, but I'll tell you this, it helps you remember the story, and it helps you remember the lesson that is so powerful on honesty. So what, so what can we learn from this story about Ananias and Sapphira this morning? Well, the first thing I see in this is a reminder of the source of deceit. Now look in verse 3 again. It says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Peter didn't have to ask Ananias where he came up with such a wicked plan. He knew the source. After all, Peter had recently experienced the power of Satan's influence in his own deceitfulness. Not but just a few weeks before this, on the Thursday night before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus warned Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. He said, before the evening is over, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And before the rooster had crowed, Peter lied three times that he even knew Jesus. Peter knew all too well the source of deceitfulness. Jesus, when he was addressing some of the religious leaders uh, who were being hypocritical in their religious life, offers this judgment in John 8, 44. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Deceit has always been his primary tool. It's how he duped Adam and Eve in the garden. When he tempted Eve, she says, oh, but God said, we can't even touch that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says, oh, did, did, did God really say that? God just doesn't want you to know everything that he knows. And with such subtle deception, he planted the seed of doubt regarding the truth of God and brought down the entire human race. We have been battling his deceit and destructiveness ever since. 
1938, then Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, acquiesced to Hitler's demands to seize a portion of Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain did that in order to obtain a non-aggression pact with the Nazis. He came home, victoriously declared, peace with honor, peace for our time. But he sorely underestimated the enemy. The agreement meant nothing to Hitler. And soon after that, England was embroiled in World War II, fighting for the very life and soul of its nation. Our own government has declared Al-Qaeda is on the run. But again, I believe we sorely underestimate the enemy who has but one goal in mind, and that is destruction. We ought to learn the lessons of history. We can say Satan is just a symbol of temptation. He doesn't really exist. We can declare all spiritual peace for our time or Satan is on the run. But do not underestimate our enemy. He has but one goal in mind and that is our spiritual destruction. And when you and I deny his existence, we fall prey to his ultimate weapon, which is deceit. Thomas Brooks wrote, he said, Satan promises the best, but he pays with the worst. He promises honor, and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. Be on your guard, Christian. Know who you are up against in this battle. Deceit is his first name. Deceit is his middle name. Deceit is his last name. There is no truth in him. Here's the second thing, and that is our struggle with sin. In this passage of Scripture, we are reminded of our personal struggle with sin. Now, let's take a look at Ananias and Sapphira again. If, if I said, what was their problem? A lot of you would probably say, greed. And, and that was certainly a problem, but that wasn't their sin. Notice what Peter said. He said, didn't it belong to you, Ananias, before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, you didn't have to lie about this. I mean, if you wanted to keep part of the, the money, if you wanted to sell it and give half of the church and keep half of it for yourself, it was yours to do with. You, you could have done that. There was no need to do that. Besides, if you'd have given half of the money, it would still have been a benefit to the church. You could have had, everybody would have been happy, Ananias. Peter reminds him that they could have done anything thing, but lie God couldn't tolerate. Well, perhaps they wanted the praise of people more than the praise of God. Well, that certainly seems to be part of the motive, but again, that wasn't their sin. Vanity wasn't the heart and soul of the issue. The sin that cost them their lives was their deceit. They lied to God, and they lied to the church, and God would have none of it. It was a powerful lesson to communicate that God demands integrity and character and honesty from his people. If the church was going to survive from the first century to now, and from now to the end of time, it will only survive because his people are a people of character, integrity, and honesty. And while we know that Satan is the source of our temptations, he is not the source of our sin. We have no one to blame for our sin but us. And what's more, we struggle with sin every day. Maybe you don't, but I do. And because it's so personal and so prevalent, we look for ways to soften it so we can maybe not feel so bad about the guilt. Our culture has become really adept at renaming sin so it doesn't sound so bad. 
We don't talk about people lying anymore. We say, he misspoke. We don't talk about marital unfaithfulness. We say, well, she had a romantic fling. It's not stealing. We say, he reallocated the funds. You get the picture, don't you? We, we twist and we spin so that we don't feel so bad. And oh, 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 how we love to point out the failings of another. <laughs> Recently, uh, our daughter Rebecca was helping her daughters, Addie and Hayden, Addie is five and Hayden is three, with their Awana lesson for Wednesday night. And they were getting ready for the uh, Awana that night, which the, the, the lesson was on the concept of sin. Now, that's a concept that's hard for adults to grasp, let alone a five-year-old and a three-year-old. But the lesson explained that sin is anything we think, say, or do that disobeys God. Pretty good definition. Becca thought they had got it for the best of their ability at five and, and three. And so they went down to the room to play down the hallway. And about 30 minutes later, she hears Addie, Mom, Hayden is sinning. <laughs> and poor Hayden is clueless. It's like, huh, what, you know? And she wasn't sinning. She was drawing something, I think, on her Awana book in a place that she wasn't supposed to be drawing. But oh, how we love to point out somebody else's failures. It starts young, and it just keeps going. And I think the reason we enjoy pointing out another sin is that we like finding someone who is a worse sinner than we are as a point of comparison. You think I'm bad, you ought to see John Q. Pusitter. Now there is a real sinner for you. And we say it so sanctimoniously as if God grades on the curve. If we can find a few more people that are worse sinners than us, maybe we'll get a passing grade because they're on the backside of the curve and maybe it'll push us forward just enough. But the book of Romans is clear. Romans 3.11 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, for all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of His glory. <laughs> one preacher feeling rather guilty about the past week tried to reference that passage in his Sunday prayer when he prayed, God forgive us our falling shorts. <laughs> didn't come out quite right, but his point was there. We all fall short a lot, and we all need God's forgiveness. I know I do. I assume you do too. And it all boils down to a question of moral character and integrity. You see, honesty is at the core of character. Deceit is at the core of every sin. To lie is simply the intent to deceive. One can even twist or spin the truth and use the truth in a lie to deceive. It doesn't make it true. It's still the intent to deceive. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament? There was a famine in the land, so they went down into Egypt, and Abraham said to Sarah, he said, you're a beautiful woman. When we get there, Pharaoh is going to want to take you to be his wife, so say that you're my sister. I'll say that you're my sister. That way he won't kill me in order to marry you. Sure enough, they get down into Egypt, and Pharaoh wants to marry Sarah, and he said, well, she's my sister. And so Pharaoh takes her to be his wife, and God intervenes and keeps it from happening. And Pharaoh comes back to Abraham and says, what is, what is this that you've done to me? It's a sad day when a non-believer has to shame and rebuke a believer for being deceitful. But, but, but here's the twist. 
Here's the twist. It, it really wasn't quite all a lie. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. So there was, a, there was a shred of truth in it, but it was still wrong because it was the intent to deceive. It's pretty bad when godless people have more character than the people of God. You see, cheating on a test is a lie about your knowledge. An affair in your relationship with your husband or wife is a lie about your marital relationship. Self-centeredness is a lie about the priority of God in your life. You see, a lie is at the very heart of every other sin. I like what John Ortberg wrote. He said, God's primary will for your life is not the achievements you accrue. It's the person you become. God's primary will for your life is not about the, the job you ought to take. It's not primarily situational or circumstantial. It's not mainly the city where you live or whether you get married or what house you ought to be in. God's primary will for your life is that you become a magnificent person in his image, somebody with the character of Jesus, end quote. He's right. Knowing the will of God isn't that difficult for all of us. We know what it is. It's living out the character of Christ in our life. And when we start living out the character of Christ, our other questions about what God's will is for our life begin to fall into place. But I'm here to tell you it is impossible to flirt with sin and be faithful to Christ at the same time. Flirting with another won't work with your bride, and it won't work with the bride of Christ either. Last thing. Exercising control in times of temptation is something we need to work on. So what are some things that, that we can do to combat temptation and sin and build our character all at the same time? Well, you already know these things, but it's a part of the 90% you forgot. So I'm going to remind you uh, what these are, okay? Real simple, but important. And, and here's the first one. Analyze your weak areas. Know where you are vulnerable. That's going to be different with every one of us. We're, we're all wired differently. What tempts you may not tempt me, but what is tempting to me may not be of a concern to you. This much I can tell you, all of us, all of us in this room are vulnerable to temptation and sin. So know your weak link so you can guard your character at all costs. As a result, stay away from the places, people, and things that you know of will tempt your weakness. Instead, seek out wise counsel. Find somebody that you can trust who will be honest with you and help you. Take advantage of our life groups. When you're in a life group, you're, you're, you're doing life with other people who hold to the same values and can help hold you accountable as you hold them accountable. It is a team effort, and it will help us as we deal with the sin and temptation that we face. Here's the second thing. Make a commitment to be honest even when the truth is uncomfortable. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but it's always, it's always the best. And here's something else. The truth is easy to remember. When you tell a lie, then you generally have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover that lie that covered the first lie, and all of a sudden it starts getting really hard to remember all of the lies. It becomes a house of cards that comes crashing down when if you just deal with the truth... The truth is always easy to remember because it's the truth. It may be uncomfortable at times, yes, but you'll always keep it straight. And it's always the best. Honesty really is the best policy. Here's something else. 
Make smart choices. I mean, God's Word is full of advice on making smart choices. Make smart choices, people, with your life. 50-year-old Tess Christian has not smiled in 40 years. The British woman explained that she adopted a permanent straight face at the age of 10 to prevent wrinkles and laugh lines from forming around her mouth, eyes, and forehead. And in the interview, without cracking a smile, she declared, my dedication has paid off. I don't have a single line on my face. She claims that she loves life but how would anybody know when she never lets it show? I'm sorry, folks, but to go through life without smiling or laughing so you can die as a wrinkle-free corpse just does not make sense <laughs> to me. As a matter of fact, if you're a believer and you never smile and you never laugh, who's going to want to be a Christian? Who's going to want to know the Savior that you know and love? And by the way, there's nothing in the Bible that says wrinkles are bad. But the Bible does say laughter and joy and smiles. Laughter is good medicine. You see, that's what God says we ought to be doing because when you are a joyful person, when you laugh, when you can smile, it is that joy that permeates our society and our culture and causes them to want Jesus Christ. As our Creator, it doesn't say anything about wrinkles. As a matter of fact, if you laugh a lot and you smile a lot, the wrinkles will all be in the right place and they will be like a roadmap that will lead other people to the joy that has changed your life. Make good choices, not strange ones, bad ones, sinful ones. Make good choices. Here's the last thing. Ready or not, follow God's lead. Ready or not, follow God's lead. When God opens a door, He rarely hands you a finished outline of His plan for you. He just invites you to walk through the open door. Ready or not, he opens the door, says, come on through, and you've got to choose whether or not you're going to walk through that door. Truth of the matter is, most of the time, we don't feel ready. I've been praying for a job, but when I got this offer, I'm not sure if it's the right job. Well, have you been praying? Yes. Is it an open door? Yes. Maybe you should walk, go, go through. Maybe this is God calling you. We've been praying about starting a family, and we got this opportunity to adopt a child, but I'm not sure if that's the right. Have you been praying? Yes. Is this an open door? Yes. Then perhaps you should walk through. I've been praying that God will show me what I'm supposed to do for him, and I got a call to volunteer to help struggling students with reading, but I'm not sure if that's really what God. Have you been praying about it? Yes. Is this an open door? Yes. Then you better walk through. Ready or not, when God gives you an open door, it's best to walk through. And that's why we call it walking by faith and not by sight, because nobody is ever 100% sure when they walk through one of God's open doors. John Ortberg wrote, he said, feeling ready is overrated. God is looking for obedience. You know, very few in the Bible were ready. God said, Moses, go back to Egypt. And he said, but I I've got this speech problem, Lord. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, and Jeremiah said, oh, sovereign Lord, I am too young. Isaiah said, oh, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Not one of them, when they were called, was ready. But God made them ready because they walked through an open door. <clears throat> On June 25th, 1973, I had been taking flying lessons. I'd had about six and a half hours of instruction when my instructor, who was also my uncle, told me to, to stop on the taxiway, and he 
opened the door, and he began to unfold his lanky frame out of the instructor's seat, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, she's all yours. Take her around. I gulped. My mind was suddenly flooded with doubt. I'm, I'm not ready, my mind was thinking. Are you sure about this? Do you know what you're doing, Uncle Carl? I mean, you're leaving this expensive piece of machinery in the hands of an 18-year-old. Are you sure you want to do that? Before I could even verbalize any of my concerns, he shut the door, stepped off the wing, and was walking away. I'll never forget the feeling of that first solo flight. Ready or not, my moment had come. The first person I told was my dad. I suspect you assumed that I made it okay since I'm standing here preaching to you this morning. <laughs> and I did. Never have forgotten that, that incredible joy. When you do it God's way, your character will grow and you will feel the joy of what He's been preparing you for all of your life. When you follow God's lead, ready or not, your time will come. And when you step through that open door, when you do it, you'll pray, oh, Father, I did it. He'll be the first one you'll want to tell. Father, I did it. And he'll say, I know. You were ready to solo. I knew it all the time. Just think what Ananias and Sapphira could have accomplished with an honest gift, with honest lives, if they had followed God's lead. Better yet, imagine what we could do and accomplish as a people if we become a people of the character of Christ and follow His lead.